0: They're people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to Episode 7 of the Toxic Avengers Podcast. Thanks for joining. For this episode, I spoke with Dr. Anna Reed, scientist with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Dr. Reed is a leader in the effort to deploy the most current science to achieve strong health protections for communities faced with PFAS contamination. Her work has been essential to support regulation of PFAS at the federal, state, and local levels, as well as internationally and with major retailers and product manufacturers. There aren't enough hours in the day for all the things Anna does. A partial list includes writing expert comments on draft toxicity assessments or proposed drinking water standards for PFAS, overseeing studies monitoring and mapping PFAS contamination, Contributing to key scientific papers in the field, and providing technical support for citizens and advocacy groups around the country. She is widely recognized by her peers as an MVP of the nationwide efforts to address the PFAS crisis. We began with a discussion of arguments the chemical industry is making to downplay the seriousness of the PFAS crisis and in opposition to regulating PFOS as a class. We then traced her family background and educational path, including a PhD in developmental biology from the University of California, San Francisco, leading up to her joining NRDC in 2017. We then turned to some of the health science and policy issues related to PFAS. One technical note this will be the first time that an interview for the podcast will be presented in two parts. Here's part one of my interview with Dr. Anna Reed. Recorded in June of last year. How did the chemical watch panel go?
1: No, uh, it went well. I mean, as as expected, I guess. I I was definitely the odd man out, odd woman out. Most of the panelists were part of the uh, ACC or industry in some way, and you know, kind of we're, we had opposite opinions about everything. <laughs>
0: So they're all saying you've got to do it one at a time, review PFOS one at a time. We can't have a class based approach that's
1: Yeah, I mean I think that everything's kind of you know, they do what we we usually expect, which is use science in a way to slow everything down and, and make it so that the status quo is maintained. If you know what you're talking about, you know what they're doing, but it you know it always sounds professional and reasonable. Right. And, um but you know, like a good example was um a lot of there's a lot of talk now about the essential uses approach, which is basically asking the question first: like, why are you using these chemicals? Do you even need to use these chemicals? If you don't, they're not essential for the safety and functioning of society. Then let's not use them. We phase out basically all non-essential uses of chemicals of concern. And scientists are putting it forward as like a a way to be much more efficient in regulating, especially you know, large classes of chemicals that are used everywhere, right? Because it's just a huge task to try and um, look at every scenario. They uh, made a point uh, several times of stressing how important it is that we need to do risk assessment first before we look at the uses and and whether or not they're essential, um, which, you know, would defeat the entire purpose of the essential uses framework. So not surprising, but it's good to hear it. It's good to know what we'll be up against.
0: Right. I find the panels are definitely useful for you can kind of hear what they're saying and you're going to hear it <laughs> with very little variation again for the next 10 years.
1: Well, one of their one of their stories is that so industry came out with a paper a couple of weeks ago claiming that there's only like 256 PFAS of concern uh, that we would have to actually look at because they surveyed 3 PFAS manufacturers and they said there's only 256 PFAS that we're producing, so that's all we need to be concerned about. And this this messaging that we've been hearing about how PFAS is too large to, to manage and we need to do it as a class is wrong, Like it's totally manageable. First of all, there's lots of problems with the paper, <laughs> like significant problems with the paper. Zero transparency, you can't look at the data, it's not reproducible. Um, we have to just kind of trust them that that's the case. It's not and it's like three manufacturers. Um, and then it's completely missing the point that PFAS are persistent because even if they're only using 256 right now, there's all the other PFAS that have been produced and released in the environment. And that still, we still care about just because you're not making PFO and PFAS anymore doesn't mean that we aren't, it isn't in our environment and in our bodies. So they're, you know, don't even like just skip thinking about the other stuff. Right. But so, so, they, so they claim the number is much smaller that we need to worry about and then that we could actually manage regulating them like we normally do because it's a smaller number. Of course, if you think about the amount of time that it takes to regulate one chemical, 256 is still unmanageable. Um, so totally. <laughs> that's not quite true. But, you know, they're they're claiming, oh, well, we can you only have a couple hundred and we could do in high throughput in vitro screening. And, you know, then we would be able to solve the problem, of course. You know, I had to mention that, you know, well, high throughput screening is great and everything, but let's be honest, the science isn't there. How are you going to pick out effects on, you know, really complex biological processes that involve multiple organs or development or any of those things? Like, you just can't copy that in a a Petri dish, unfortunately. So, yeah, I think there's this really sophisticated strategy to figure out how to make sure that Either we can't regulate it um, because we have to go through massive amounts of work to be able to prove that it's these things are harming us. But even if they put something forward that sounds reasonable, like yes, go ahead and regulate us, it's in a way that wouldn't pick up some of the most sensitive health effects that we know are associated with PFAS. Right. So, yeah.
0: Okay. So you've been the you've been at NRDC four years. Is that right?
1: Three four. About three and a half. Yeah, three and a half. I mm-hmm. can measure it by my daughter's age.
0: How old was she when when you started?
1: I started seven months pregnant.
0: Oh, right, right, okay. <laughs> I have to remember that. That's hard math for me. But so three and a half years, only one of which was under a global pandemic. So that's good. Yes. And and PFOS has really been your thing. I mean, you've been NRDC's PFOS scientist since you started. Right. And and I. I mean, is that 100% of what you do, do you think, or 99.5%?
1: Yeah, up there. I think in the beginning, I did some work on flame retardants and kind of whatever was needed when I first started that, you know, the team was working on. But the goal was for me to get up to speed with PFAS. And once that happened, it just the the work exploded and... Uh, there's so much work going on at NRDC, that, and, and then I have my own projects as well. And so um, I really don't have time or capacity to do anything else other than PFAS. And I have the like interesting experience of walking into like the PFAS issue kind of a little bit later in the process. You know, So I think a lot of scientists that have been around for a while, they worked on other chemicals of concern and slowly more and more information came out about PFAS and people started to get concerned, but it wasn't, I think it was like more of a gradual process versus I didn't know about this world at all, came, you know, from a developmental biology background we just did lab science. And as I started to read about PFAS, it was just shocking that that many that many hazards, that many issues could be, could surround a class of chemicals and that there could be that many of them and that we, we were just using them everywhere. It was coming at it from kind of a, outsider point of view was still kind of just blows my mind a little bit that, you know, you, you know, we we aren't doing anything about that many chemicals that never go away. Um and I think the the hubris of uh well I guess that happens a lot in, <laughs> with us as as a society, but the hubris of just producing massive amounts of chemicals that we can't take back without really doing any real research on it just blew my mind. It was like especially coming from a situation where, you know, we did very controlled experiments, you look at one, one chemical and see how it affects, you know, an animal. The fact that we were doing it at a population scale with a whole bunch of chemicals. Yeah, it's, it's horrific.
0: Just from a scientific perspective, that seems crazy. Yeah. And, and then as you've been doing the work, you learned and been very involved in all the consequences, all the various ways we're being exposed and all the difficulties of addressing each of those ways we're being exposed and all the more and more information. We're going to talk about your database about the health effects of those. Yeah. So it's been quite a bit. Well, so then let's, that's a great introduction. Let's go back then to the beginning and work up to this and then talk about PFAS some more. Tell me, uh, where are you from originally? Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Ridgecrest, California, in the middle of nowhere.
0: (laughs) Ridgecrest, the nearest place other people would have heard of.
1: It's on your way to Death Valley. Okay. Yeah. Um, It's on the eastern side of the Sierra Nevadas. It's in the middle of the desert. My parents were both physicists, and they worked at the DoD on a Navy base out there that does research. So... It's purposely in the middle of nowhere.
0: So, is there is there a reason there's a navy base in the middle of the desert?
1: Uh well, it's where a lot of testing happens.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Um, yeah. Uh,
0: what kind of testing?
1: Um, bombs. Uh, Unless it's classified. A lot of it's classified, but you know, you mm. would see airplanes go by, and, and mm. once in a while, instead of having earthquakes, we would have uh, the, you know. The, I forgot what it's called the buildings would shake from some sort of test. Yeah. Oh. Huh.
0: So, uh, did you all go to Death Valley for an, you know, family trips or am, I've never been to Death Valley myself. One of my kids was just there, so I don't it's a place people go, right?
1: It's yeah, Death Valley is a big tourist destination. It is beautiful. Um you can only really obviously go not in the summer. But no, I I we didn't we grew up in the desert. We didn't think it was beautiful. Um, so,
0: <laughs> Let's go deeper uh, into the desert.
1: Yeah. Uh, family vacations involved camping on the coast of California or flying out um, somewhere tropical so that we could go scuba diving. It never, n- never involved spending more time in the desert.
0: So is Ridgecrest, were you on an actual naval base or just sort of in a community that had the base that, that centered around the base?
1: Yeah, the base is China Lake, and okay. the it's just right off base is, is all of Ridgecrest. Mm-hmm. I actually lived um, on base when I was really young. I don't remember it, but then my parents oh. moved off. Most of the po- civilian population lived uh, in Ridgecrest.
0: Did your folks meet in the Navy or, or in...
1: No, in they weren't military. school? Yeah, um, they, they met in grad school. Okay. Uh, my mom I came over from Taiwan for grad school, um, and they met in Oregon and get their PhD in physics. So,
0: and I think you have one sibling, a brother, is that right? A younger brother.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. He's, um, he's followed the, uh, family, um, business and gone into electrical engineering. He now works for Lockheed on satellite technology. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> so a very science oriented or certainly capable, more than capable family.
1: Yeah. My grandfather on my dad's side was an engineer for Boeing and all all the different engineering firms and then started his own company with some of his friends. He was always, he was a, he, he did a lot of really interesting things um, back in the day. Um, Never really took them anywhere, but he, he worked on like, one of the first like personal computers and i mean he didn't you know it was just tinkering for him he built a little electric car <laughs> um and so yeah that's that's where the engineering comes in and then um, my dad you know he got a, a master's in physics but he did a lot of like physics engineering um for his career um mom was m- m- straight just physicist um but then yeah so my so my brother followed in their footsteps it's the joke is I'm the odd person out, which is hilarious because we're—I I mean, I think we're all scientists in everybody else's view. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> How are you? Because you're a biologist. That's right. Were you were you in, interested in science, biology, and you know straight away in high school or even middle school? Was that kind of clearly the the thing you were most into?
1: Um, I mean, I think I was always. It kind of fit the you know perfect student mold for quite a bit when I was growing up I was very focused and had to get straight A's and it, was, it comes from my mom who grew up in a educational system where um you know they would te- get tested every couple of years and if you didn't pass that test, you were kind of done um so it was a lot of pressure um and so she passed that she had that kind of it wasn't just a pressure but you know like a a love and an appreciation for education mm-hmm. like one of the Things that I cherish the most is, uh, you know, there's a real respect for um, teachers in her culture. And she started inviting my teachers every year in the summer for like a big dinner. And so I ended up seeing my preschool teachers, my kindergarten teacher, and then all the way up into high school. I would um, see them once a year. And so, like, all the teachers knew each other. By By the time I finished high school, it was this big thing. She'd cook up a bunch of Chinese food. And, um, you know, so I got to, like, f- stay in contact with my entire, like, educational support network. Um,
0: wow, that yeah. that's a real gift.
1: Yeah, it's a, it was um, – I didn't realize how special and, like, unique it was until later, yeah. But so I, I excelled at math and science, uh, probably because my mom and dad taught me it on the side. I was lucky that the schools where I grew up, a lot of the teachers were retired engineers and mathematicians from the base, so we had like a um, kind of a a good pool of people teaching us. And uh, but then also, <laughs> my parents made me do, like they made up math homework and English homework over the summer. I had to do like. <laughs> I just still had to do school over the summer, along with, like, I did a lot of swimming and other activities. So they kept me real busy. But I think I always kind of excelled at math and science. And so when I went to college, I I think I was mostly interested in becoming a doctor, actually. It was, um, I think, the influence from my parents that I even knew or even thought about research. Um, so I, even though I, so I was kind of thinking of being an MD-PhD and i uh started working in a a lab uh, freshman year i was <laughs> able to convince somebody to take me on even though i knew nothing about research um and she was a fabulous mentor um like i learned so much from her and i and i worked in her lab about 20 hours a week uh for wow
0: that's a lot she years. was a professor yeah. at call at the, where you went to school
1: mm mm-hmm, yeah uc santa barbara And the interesting thing about UC Santa Barbara is it doesn't really have a huge grad program. um, And so we just more opportunities as undergrad to be able to work in grad school or well, sorry, in labs. Yeah.
0: How did you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you go.
1: Well, so so, yeah, I was pretty set on doing like some sort of MD, PhD track um, and then, you know, had a long conversation with my mentor, my, my PI um, at a certain point. And you know, she said, you, I think generally it was, it's thought that if you really want to excel at something, you you pick one. Right. Um, and you know, I think in the end I ended up choosing to do research because uh, it was what I knew and was good at. And honestly, probably a little bit from a personal point of view too. Uh, not that the research track is all that great for starting a family either, but surely the medical, um, <laughs> schedule is not. So yeah.
0: Were you thinking of that even at that time when you mm-hmm. were a freshman or sophomore, you were looking ahead?
1: Yeah. At that aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, I think my mom worked really hard, but she always, she had a job that was flexible enough and always kind of put us first. So she was able to, you know, be there all the time when we needed us and take us to all our different after school things. And I I just, so I was able to see that, that how important that like work-life balance was. And so I knew eventually that I didn't want something that was all encompassing.
0: Right. Uh, how did you choose UC Santa Barbara? What was that? I got a process? scholarship,
1: I got a full ride there. I had full ride to there and Irvine. And so, um, and you know, I, I was trying, I, the, the real choice actually was between UC Berkeley and Santa Barbara. And somehow I had the wisdom to realize that, well, I mean, one, it, I didn't want my parents to pay for school if they didn't have to, but, but like I could get a really good good education in either. It didn't really matter the name as much, which was the first time I semi disappointed my Chinese family (laughs) in picking Santa Barbara over Berkeley.
0: Oh, that did disappoint them.
1: Oh, I mean, there's a little bit of a, you know, there's a, there's more reputation with Berkeley. Right. Yeah. Um, But I think, and I, I, I'm not sure I, I knew exactly why I chose Santa Barbara other than, you know, I had a full ride, but yeah. um, it was a really, looking back, really smart decision because it kind of forced me also to have a little bit more of a life, I think, than I would have. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a party school. I didn't party a lot, but, I, you know, I was around it. Um, it was right next to the beach. I lived on the, you know, I studied all the time, but I, I could study outside looking at the ocean and it, all of those things were really good for me, even though I didn't necessarily know I needed that type of balance. Yeah. Right. And it was the same thing for grad school. I ended up going to UC San Francisco because of the the program there and the people there versus some of the other schools like you know, Harvard or Stanford where I, I didn't feel as comfortable culture wise. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I enjoyed my time there. And I thought, you know, I got a really good education and I, I mean, I think, I think spending the time with the, the, the professor that I worked with as much as I did was a, like a huge influence for me. And all, I mean, she was a young uh, female professor that had two kids and she was juggling all of that as well. Right. So it was just um, unfortunate to have a lot of, honestly, like really good female role models in my life. Right. Did she get added?
0: To the dinners or to the parties?
1: <laughs> no, those stopped. Ridgecrest is pretty far away from uh, Santa Barbara.
0: <laughs> oh, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah. Did you were you doing sports or other athletics or or kind of other activities in high school or in?
1: Yeah, I was. Um, I did swimming and um, karate my whole time. But I did a lot of other things when I was younger, like piano and ballet and all of the all that stuff. Um, but swimming was what really stuck it Was a competitive summer move we on national level around 12. Uh, but, you know, I swam twice a day, a couple hours a session and uh, blew out my shoulder by high school. So I had to have surgery my senior year and I was done. Um, senior year of high school. And, yeah. It was really, I, it was really devastating at that point because my whole social network was around swimming. My like identity was around swimming. I spent so much time swimming, you know. And it, it's that that type of competition in sports. I think you know helped give me the confidence that I have right now. But at the same time, I think it was a, a blessing in disguise to not have continued to do it in college. Mm. Um, got to do other things, you know, with that right. time. And but still had all the experiences that were important in competitive swimming before that. Yeah. It's pretty common to have injuries from doing that level of sport, that much repetition, it's not, not natural in the body. Yeah. So,
0: so when the Olympics come around is swimming the thing you most watch?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I do love watching swimming. I mean, gymnastics and all those other things that people like to watch, but I have a special yeah. place in my heart for swimming. Uh, my husband doesn't get it at all. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah.
0: What What was your best event?
1: Uh, I I did the IM uh, individual medley uh, pretty well. I was also a butterfly and uh, backstroker. So, hmm. yeah, sprints mostly, middle distance. Sprints and middle distance. I didn't have oh, the patience uh-huh. for a long Long distance. Can
0: you swim now, or is it like out of the question? Like, just even for relaxation? I can swim occasionally,
1: but I like so I picked it up again for a while um, in grad school. There's like master's programs and stuff, and when I started to frequently practice, then it was giving me problems again, so I'd stop.
0: Okay, so you you graduated with a degree in in undergrad in what
1: cell and developmental biology.
0: Okay. And then when's that?
1: That was in 2005. So I hinted before that I was a little bit of a very, very into academics. So I had just been, you know, taking classes, probably more units than most people a quarter because I wanted to. Um, And then I also had all these credits coming from working in the lab. And I turned around, I was originally a biochem major, and I turned around and realized that I was going to wait an entire year to take one more class that I needed to do a biochemistry major. So I ended up graduating a year early with cell and developmental biology because it was the classes that I actually ended up liking more. Um, so I had already kind of f- fulfilled that program, which was uh, also another like gift because I hadn't applied to grad schools. I, w- I wasn't prepared. I didn't realize I could graduate that early. So, uh, I had a whole year off and <laughs> I blew all my savings, um, buying a, 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 back in those days, you could buy like a round, a student around the world trip for actually a decent amount of price. And you could just stop at different locations along the way. And so I, I did six months of backpacking, um, across the, the globe. Really? And yeah. So, I mean, it was not planned. But it was it was fantastic. I, I I'd always wanted to travel, and so I went to to Europe and Southern Africa, a couple of different countries down there, and then over to Japan and Thailand and Australia, New Zealand, and then Tahiti, and then home. So just kind of all the way, just kind of picked some spots and went. It was obviously a like just a fabulous experience and gave me a lot of perspective that I hadn't have like just taking a break and. You yeah. um, that's your
0: first real break from this very, you know, driven academic, Right. not in a bad way, but that's just what you were doing. And then you had this opening. Had you, were you already a backpacker? Was that already something you knew you liked or you just, no,
1: I just decided I was going to do it. <laughs> yeah. I usually just, I'm not super impulsive, but like once I get an idea, I just kind of usually ended up doing it. Uh, in my head. And, and, you know, there was a lot of students traveling. uh, There always are. And so, right. Yeah, I was like, what am I gonna do with my time? (laughs) And so I had this great um, student travel agent that was like, well, you should do all these things. And she, like, built this dream trip (laughs) with me. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, You got I got really used I mean, I spent like, you know, half a year just living out of one backpack. It was a very different experience. And living off very little money. (laughs) But what happened was that I I realized that I, I wasn't actually in a huge rush and actually liked what I was doing. And so I ended up deferring grad school. Yeah. So I called up UCSF and thank goodness it was UCSF because they were so understanding and just didn't, they were like, sure, take another year off. Let us know when you want to come back. And so I ended up going down and living in Chile. I worked in a catholic convent basically helping to take care of well uh giving english classes and and other types of like art and dance classes um to some uh group of girls that were part of a a girl's home that Mm -hmm. was hosted by the catholic convent i'm not religious so that was another interesting experience but uh i did love spending time with the girls there and and learning you know spanish and about the culture and I was only supposed to be there for six months as well. And then I deferred another year. So <laughs> I actually took three years off between undergrad and grad school. It was a little bit hard decision coming back, actually. I wasn't sure if I was going to come back. And I think eventually I'd, I I realized, you know, a couple things. One, I, I really liked helping people directly, working with people. I didn't actually need to do science to be happy, which was another mm-hmm. interesting realization. But in the end, I thought, you know, well, I'm really good at science and and there are ways to use science to help people and, you know, to make the world a better place, I guess. And but not everybody can do science in the way I could do science. So, you know, it would be a value add. So I went back to school at that point. I think I think I was thinking more about science education than anything else. I didn't know anything about policy. Yeah. Yeah, that experience was like this, this lucky, lucky series of events that altered me for the rest of my life, like it changed yeah. my priorities, it grounded me a lot more going back into grad school. The people who went straight from undergrad to grad school were how I probably would have been just like freaking out about classes and everything else like that. And I was like, I just learn it. It'll happen. <laughs> 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 um, that wasn't it, it. It really helped to have like a little bit more perspective on life and kind of realize that there was more than academics, that, that I was using academics as a, you know, a means to an end at some point.
0: So when you were thinking of it as a science education is the thing you do, but you came back from Chile well traveling and then Chile mm-hmm. with an idea of wanting to do something with science to better the greater good sounds like, or the world. So say more about that. Like what, where how where, how did that develop, or what was it something about being in Chile that brought that on? Like using here's my skill or my thing, what can I do with it, or where where did that how did that come about?
1: Well, I realized um, when I was traveling how lucky I was to have the education that I had to have parents that were able to provide me to supplement my education, and had often often thought it was ridiculous that there was this mentality that people. You know, if they struggled a little bit in math, then they would just label themselves as not a math person. And that was the end of their, like, math and science career, which was just, like, almost always the fault of the educational system and not them. And mm. I had a, I actually ended up just having a lot of discussions with, surprisingly enough, educators around the world, like, when I was traveling. And that's actually one of the reasons why I, I decided to go to Chile. They they were They needed help. And I I needed, you know, to explore that more and, I don't know, also just experience a different culture and kind of um, understand myself a little bit outside of the, what I'd always been. And, And so it was, it was, you know, yes, I was helping take care of, about 30 girls in this girl's home. But at the same time, I was, uh, I think this is where I was learning the most about myself and what I was interested in doing and how much kids can flourish with support and good education and just, uh, you know, attention. And so I always thought that, like, not that everybody needs to do science, but it, it's just it too much of a barrier for people to do science. And I wanted to work on that, I guess, I think. Was one of the, I, I wasn't sure necessarily that's what I wanted to do with my career but I, it was what I did when I went back. I, I was in grad school but every year I would work on yeah, work in the science education outreach program that the UCSF, UCSF has. so I, I got to you know work in classrooms from like with like th- third graders to high schoolers and I um, get to host um, interns in the summer to work in our lab and, and to mentor them there and so I always I always really liked doing that um, in grad school. And, uh, I think that was part of, part of that came from those experiences while I was traveling.
0: Uh, were you already speaking Spanish when you went down there? I had or was high that... school
1: level Spanish. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how long,
0: how long was it before you could understand what people, you know, they it's pretty
1: rapid. It's the best way to learn Spanish is around kids. Because they um, have oh. no um, embarrassment about correcting you. In fact, they find a lot of <laughs> joy you. from it. Oh. Yeah, um, That it was, like, it was like a two-way <laughs> partnership. Like, I would teach them English and they would teach me Spanish and um, oh, all yeah. of that. So, yeah, it was fairly quick because it was immersive. Um, but it was always a struggle. Um, and it was, you know, a really good way to be to, like, to make sure you stay humble in that situation. Because, you know, just you get to experience what people think of you when you can't speak their language. Um, you know, um, not, I wasn't the first time I, I actually, you know, my first language was Chinese, but once I started going to America, like English schools, I completely dropped Chinese and learned English and didn't, didn't turn back until college. And then I started taking Chinese again. And then I did a, a, a semester study abroad in, in China. And, uh, yeah.
0: During undergrad. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Oh. So I had I had that experience already as well of not really being all that great at the language and living in in that in a community that spoke that language. So uh I I knew, you know, kind of immersing myself in it was the best way to learn. But, you know, be patient and deal with a situation where you you you're pretty helpless and you can't communicate very well and yeah. So in the beginning, I just spent a lot of time with the younger kids and you know, helped take care of them. and slowly, got better in Spanish and was able to help more.
0: Yeah, where where did did you where did you study in China for your six months? In Beijing.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And doing what? Just 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 studying Chinese. I also mm-hmm. have family there, so. That was part of it. It wasn't the first time I had gone there. I had family in Beijing. I went there and visited in high school and a couple times after that. So it was nice to be able to see them.
0: Does your dad also speak Mandarin?
1: A little bit. Um, He went uh, for a summer and studied. I lived with my mom's family before they got married um, in Taiwan (laughs) and studied Mandarin. Yeah. So, but I would say he remembers more of it than me because my brain only can handle one extra language at a time, so now all I have is Spanish in my head. I can't really remember much of my chinese i I mostly only remember Spanish now, so that's unfortunate, but I think I'm just not surrounded by Chinese, so it's hard to keep
0: so when you were before you started your school, you're saying you, your first language was span- excuse me was was Mandarin mm-hmm. Chinese, so was your dad speaking it to you too? They were conversing in
1: no, my the, mom. With each other,
0: or that was just kind of uh, your mom.
1: My, I apparently copy my mom. She also started her job, um, very pregnant <laughs> with me, uh-huh. and you know back in the day. I mean, it's still a problem now, but a really problem back then. Um, she only was able to take as much maternity leave as she could go into the hole for vacation and sick leave, right? Um, and so. My grandmother and my aunt came and lived with us and took care of me um, for the first year of my life, two years um, of yeah. my life. Wow. So I was surrounded by Chinese in, in that aspect. And that's that's been the case. Like, that's how my family rolls. So my other aunt came and helped um, take care of my brother when he was born. And just uh, my mom moved in. <laughs> with us when I, when my daughter was born for a while. Um, it's just how it, yeah.
0: So is Harper going to learn Chinese?
1: Uh, well, she's learning Spanish right now because that's what I can support. Um, which (laughs) is a little bit, it's heartbreaking for my mom, but I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see about Chinese. There's always Chinese school on Saturdays, which my cousins were hated. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody wants to go to extra school, but they can speak Chinese. I'm, I'm, I think my brother and I are really the only ones that can't. And that's because we grew up in a very white community and there wasn't any way to support us continuing to learn Chinese. And my dad didn't speak it at home. So I think my the rest of my aunts took a look at that situation and, you know, tried really hard to keep Chinese going in their homes, which was great. Uh, all of my cousins can speak it.
0: Is your mom the oldest? I think you told me you have four or five or six aunts. My mom is
1: the second oldest. She has five sisters and had one brother. Yeah. Seven kids.
0: Amazing. (laughs) And they're almost all in San Jose, you said?
1: Yeah. Most of them live in San Jose. Um, One lives in LA, though she spends a lot of her time in Taiwan now. Hmm. So, yeah.
0: Okay, so you're getting your you go to grad school at UCSF mm-hmm. and somewhere somewhere along the way you get interested in tell me about the genome of the sea urchin
1: <laughs> Yeah the lab I worked in worked uh it was a developmental biology lab and it worked on sea urchins and starfish they uh, you can get them to spawn quite a few eggs so it's a lot of material that you can work with mm. and they all you can fertilize them all at the same time so you have like a synchronous development of Thousands of eggs, hundreds of eggs, depending on how much you collect. So we that those are the systems we worked on, um, and it was around the time when people were building genomes for different species, and so they just needed a lot of people to annotate annotate genes. Right, you go in and you look at the sequence and you start. You basically identify genes that you know of, um, so that you know the genome is annotated, and so that's what we did. I was not at all part of the main project. You can see there's a giant list of authors on that. It's just everybody who helped, kind of label all the information that we knew about the genome at that point.
0: And is that now f- much farther along, or is it?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that the, the all the genomes are much better annotated than they were when they first started. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so you you get you go to grad school and then you just you go straight into your postdoc. As a research fellow, is that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't It was in the same lab under the same PI. Um, It was just a bridge, basically, to finish work that I was working on before I started the internship at NRDC.
0: Right. So how did that come about, the NRDC? How did you get, yeah, how did that, how did you even hear about it or get interested or what kind of, what was the path from your lab work and academia over to NRDC?
1: So I was really, um, I really enjoyed the beginning of grad school, like the classes and learning about different science and uh, my quals, like on qualification exams, because you, you write up a thesis proposal and you defend it. And it was just like, you know, coming up with the concept of like an idea that you wanted to research and answer um, and all the, like, you know, kind of like anticipating all the different things that could go wrong and what that would mean and how you'd approach it. I really like that exercise mentally. And then, you know, you start working on it, um, the research and it's, it's interesting at the beginning. And then I realized I didn't like thinking about one question for six years. Um, so towards the end of grad school, I was pretty miserable because I was, you know, you kind of. Stuck. You, if you leave early and you don't work on that project anymore, you don't get your degree and all that time and energy, and and effort that you've put into, you know, uh, learning how to do science is, it's still there with you, but it doesn't count in society. So, um, I, you know, I, I obviously was going to stick it out and finish it, but I realized that probably wasn't going to be super happy on the academic track. (laughs) Wasn't I? Just I didn't. Yeah, I really struggled thinking about that, like being in that in the weeds for that long. Yeah. And um, so there was this program that UCSF had just started. And this was a really novel thing because it was, especially at, at places like UCSF, everybody's trained to go back into academia. Like, the, you know, the, it's like a, a feeder for PIs across the country. But you know, people were starting to think, well, what if people don't want to continue to stay in academia? Like, what are the other options for grad students in science? And they had started this program. It was called the Graduate Student Internship Career Exploration Program. And they taught us how to make resumes and how to do informational interviews. Like, all these things that we had no skills at all. Um, none of us knew about anything outside of, I me, mean, you know, resumes. We just see these. were just a list of your your publications—that's all you need for academia, right? Like, but the rest of the world had worked by different rules, and we didn't know anything about them. We didn't know anything about any of the opportunities that existed outside of academia. So it was like it was fantastic. We we were forced to go do informational interviews and like reach outside and you know like reach um, out to our like network that didn't work in academia and see what types of jobs they had, and and that's when I reached out to Vina, who was actually. um in a lab in grad school at UCSF that was down the hall from mine. And I had actually rotated in her lab uh, first year and her PI was on my faculty committee. So actually, you know, (laughs) very close connection, um, but I had no idea what she was doing. Um, And she kind of described her career path and then where she was at that point, which was NRDC. And I thought it sounded really cool, but I'm a much, Like, I have to just do something to understand whether or not I like it. So she set up an internship on NRDC's end, and I convinced this grad program to pay for three months of grad school stipend for the internship, um, which is extremely lucky. Usually there's no money to support that for grad students. Usually if a grad student does an internship, it's either a paid one at like a biotech, or they have to do it on their own time. But I got really lucky. And so that's how I ended up at NRDC for an internship.
0: So for three months and what kind of stuff did you do in that three months?
1: And it turned it up, I actually turned it up into six months. Um uh-huh. you all liked me. <laughs> so I got hired on for another three months as an independent contractor, basically. But I I worked on alternative test methods and alternative models for to be, to be used to evaluate toxicity of chemicals. So I had a lot of experience working with zebrafish in grad school. Um, I had also experience in undergrad working with um, sea urchins and starfish, so like alternative models. So normally rodents are the only kind of system that's used to look at toxicity in the like chemical sphere. But more and more people are, are realizing that if we we can use other types of animal systems to do experiments faster um, or cheaper um, and still get a lot of really important information out of it. But that was like kind of at the beginning of all that. Like academic research had that was like definitely a known thing and very common, but it had not been translated into toxicology in any way. And so I mm. I basically wrote a white paper on the advantages and disadvantages of using different types of Models for for toxicology.
0: Right. While you were there, you were you were in our San Francisco office, mm-hmm. and you were absorbing, getting interested in policy and that kind of thing. I mean, it was it's it's a it's a pretty different different focus.
1: Yeah. Um, or, or
0: was I, it? I guess I should be asking. Not no, it was you.
1: vastly different, and I was hooked within a week or two. Like it was, it was, it was a, a huge change, and both in style of thinking and the type of work and the environment. I I remember uh, starting at NRDC, and one of the first realizations I had was that oh, there are environments where people are really, really professional and nice and <laughs> supportive, and it was a i hadn't been in an environment like that before, actually, so that was one of the first you know things that i I remember being you know like I really like the people that are here and I like the way they work together, and I like the way they behave in the workspace. I love science, but academia is funky.
0: <laughs> well, say more about that like what 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 experiences were you contrasting that with stuff in the lab, people being mean or um, hyper competitive or just
1: it's always a mix it's completely different um based off of whoever's lab you're in or Mm -hmm. the type of people that are in that lab um because uh, pis do not have any manager training at all like any type of um Mm. there's no training for managers to actually for pis to manage a lab um you get a lab based off of your uh, your science credentials. It has nothing to do with whether you can write grants well, whether you can manage people well, whether you can do a budget. Like none of that stuff is is considered and you're just given a lab and thrown into the deep end. And, you know, you could have a really, like my PI was a super nice man, couldn't handle conflict. And I ended up taking a lot of sometimes that role, which is not something I enjoyed mm-hmm. because, you know, there's just, there's a lot of interesting personalities and there's never any checks to those personalities. And uh, I mean, I think there's, you know, people have heard a little bit about some of the misbehavior that's coming out of academia. I mean, I might, my, my PI's not at all like that, but I do knew, I knew I experienced it, you know, um, and uh, experienced some of the like male dominated behaviors of that, that system. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it was, uh, dysfunctional. Like I often think of like, uh, you know, lab families as being like a dysfunctional family kind of, um, you you spend all of your time with these people and most of them are lovely, but you know, if there's drama, it's usually not handled in a good way. It's not mediated. It's not, there's not, and there's not really an expectation to behave in a professional environment because you're not really considered a professional environment. Right. Um, so it's, it's, completely dependent on who who's running a lab or a program. Um, I actually was part of two labs, so I had, had different experiences. But um,
0: Was that another contributor to your looking for sort of an alternative path? I didn't know. Was it not even?
1: Yeah, it was mostly mental for me, like, and, like, what I wanted to work on. I knew I wasn't really – like, I usually, when I'm I, – I, I like what I'm doing. I'm, like, kind of all in, and I'm not dragging my feet. Um, and I was, so I knew that there was something wrong, but that wasn't, mm. I, I had no idea about that aspect that, that, that it could be so much better. <laughs> oh. So, yeah. Um, I remember later on at NREC, there was like, we had like a lot of internal discussions, as you know, about like. You know workplace environment or diversity or equity inclusion, like all these other things. And and you know I remember somebody asking me how I felt about the discussion, and and I was like, I know everybody's upset about these things, but I just think it's absolutely amazing that we're talking about it. Like I was blown away that there was actually a discussion about issues. So yeah, <laughs> it's all about perspective, I guess. But so. So there was that, but then also I just really um, was drawn to like the multidisciplinary like work and and the the, the teamwork to it. I mm-hmm. love working with lawyers. I mean, I have a soft spot in my my heart for scientists, obviously, but um, kind of having that that mix um, of of people, especially like a project that requires everybody to work together and to, to different strengths. I liked collaborative work when I was in academia, but I didn't get to do it as much as I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So you, you do that six months and then before you come back to NRDC, you, you have one more
1: stop. <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah, uh, I think those, those things that I talked about were like big draws for me, but I think in the end it was like the, the purpose behind the work that was the biggest thing for me. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why also I think that the environment was so good was everybody else was there for a reason. Right. And I didn't realize that I could use science to actually try and, you know, protect people from pollution or toxic exposures or, or any of those things. Um, And so that was the biggest draw for me. And so I knew I wanted to stay in that type of work. And and I also realized that I could kind of, like, I had the training to be able to work in any type of science if I needed to, right? I just needed a little bit of time to come up to speed with it. So that's why I ended up looking for, like, another opportunity to develop more of my policy experience.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so then I applied to the California Council on Science and Technology's Science Policy Fellowship.
0: So what is that, the California Council on Science and Technology?
1: It's California's own little uh, NAS, really. Um, National oh. Academy of Sciences. Yeah, it's, um, I didn't realize that. Yeah, so uh, the legislature or the executive branch in California can ask CCST to answer a question for them, like do a report. And so, like the like a good example was they're like, "Tell us more about fracking and the consequences of fracking." And so then they pull together a bunch of experts in the field and have them deliberate, and, and they write up a report. Similar to the NAS um, function, um, but specific for California, um, and then one mm. of the branches of that is to insert PhDs into the legislature. Um, actually, it's grown now to both the legislature and the executive branch. Um, but when I was there, it was ten of us per year, and we would be put into the legislature as policy fellows for a year. So we did a, a year of boot, or sorry, a month of boot camp, where mm-hmm. we got. Just day after day of like policy lessons, you know, like how the government worked and how the state capital worked and all of them, everything from like what's acceptable to wear, <laughs> you know, to how like bills got went through the legislative process. And then after that, we did this like med school like placement where we interviewed with all of the offices that were interested in having a fellow.
0: And then Mm -hmm. put
1: our preferences in, and they put their preferences in, and then it went into the black box of leadership, and then everybody got assigned. And then I got assigned, uh, thankfully, to a fantastic uh, policy committee. It was the Senate Environmental Quality Committee. So I got to, I mean, some people, and and I think I would have learned a lot in any um, committee, but some people got put into Mm-hmm. I think it was a, it was a voting, yeah voting based one you know like so something yeah. with nothing really to do with science but you know it was about yeah. the policy aspect of it um but I got to also I got like this a smorgasbord of like really interesting crazy you know science uh in terms of how like you know certain bills af- affect environmental quality and got to do policy analysis of a bunch of the the bills
0: and see the process By which those are developed or negotiated or passed or killed or whatever it is.
1: Yeah. It was just very, you just, you just get thrown into the whole process. You're part of it. It's very immersive. It was like a lot of learning quick and it was really fun. It was a lot of fun. And, and, you know, kind of sitting in that seat between the two groups, there's always two groups, um, you know, on either side of a bill and yeah, it was really interesting. I, the first thing that they had me do actually was plan an informational hearing, kind of an oversight hearing on um, mm-hmm. the Department of Pesticide Regulation. <laughs> that was my first um, Whoa. <laughs> foray into pesticides and realizing how bad regulation of pesticides were. I was just kind of shocked. So we had a he- I, I, I set up a hearing around a decision to set up a buffer around schools of 25 feet because that made zero scientific sense. Uh, uh, in terms of spraying pesticides
0: that's what was proposed we're going to do a 25 foot buffer No,
1: that was what was proposed and set yeah um we were not able to change that there was a lot of very upset people understandably like 25 feet does nothing to protect kids from pesticide spray but there and you know it's a huge problem in california there's so many schools that are right in the middle of farmland right that's when i realized that not all scientists thought the same (laughs) you know interacting with you know Agency scientist was a uh, was eye opening. Science had always been so creative for me, especially I think you know being on kind of the leading edge of science where you're finding out new information. And then uh, running across somebody who was supposed to be a scientist but was like, "No, there's no way to think other than A to B to C," and I was like, "But that's not all." All signs say that that's not the way to do it, and that's not you know scientifically accurate. And it was like, "Well, that's our process," and. uh, so it was a first lesson in and realizing that we had a like very uphill battle when it comes to certain issues, not just from industry but from the regulatory right angle
0: a valuable sadly a valuable and highly relevant lesson
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah um and then after that, I worked on like we then then you know the session really start got started going, and then I was assigned bills to to analyze and got to learn how to like you know, I already knew how to do this, but, you know, research all of the kind of relevant information that I would need to understand the bill and then have conversations with all the people that were involved and kind of write an analysis on it. And yeah, I think it was really, it was really fun. And I learned a lot, I think probably wouldn't have been happy in that position longer than a few years, Mm -hmm. but it was great to to be in it and to learn how all that worked.
0: So you, up until then, other than your six months at NRDC, the policy and politics and sort of the, that whole process was that on your radar, but just not your thing or not on your radar at all, or, or you'd always had an interest in it, but we're doing more kind of the lab science.
1: I knew nothing about policy before walking into NRDC internship, Mm. like nothing. Um, and I had no idea that chemicals aren't really regulated. I had no idea. Like I, none of that, none of that was, was quite, it's, it's a good experience to have because, you know, I'm, I'm supposed to be rather educated in you know, all that stuff. Right. But I mean, if you don't pay attention to it and nobody tells you about it, of course you don't know about it. Right. Uh, I just, I think logically I thought if we know all about all of this, that we do know about biology and, and, and science, like there's no way that we could be that responsible I didn't think that, I mean, I just assumed that there was somebody responsible at the FDA or EPA or whatever, <laughs> making sure that some of these decisions were researched and 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 thought through. Um, so that was my, it was a big wake-up call for me coming to NRDC.
0: So the the working for the California legislature, did it meet your expectations? Was it different than your expectations? What were you, what did you envision going in and what did you,
1: I was smart enough to know that I knew nothing about what was going to happen when I walked in. So I didn't have expectations. I just wanted to learn. Um, and that's, I think, the best way to go into it. Um, because, yeah, you're not there to, you're really just there to learn. And there's a lot of dynamics and politics. And you you have to be careful not to get into hot water. And and so just navigating that whole world was, like, super interesting But I had no expectations. I had no idea what I was getting into. Mm. Yeah.
0: Okay, so you did that. How long was that? That was...
1: Just a year. A
0: year. Okay.
1: Yeah. And about halfway through it, I got a phone call from Vina, highly encouraging me to apply for a position, which ended up being her position, Uh um, because she had taken a... She had left NREDC to take a position at UCSF. And then I got another email from Miriam, highly encouraging me to... Applied for this position, so I, yeah, so I was excited about it. I had loved NRDC, and I didn't necessarily choose to leave because I wanted to. It was just you know, open positions at a NGO are not common, and so I applied. It was good that it was in the middle of my internship because it took that long. Yes,
0: <laughs> that was uh, the expedited process. You just don't realize that,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, six months. Yeah. And I, I think I was, you know, super lucky that I could just turn around and come back to NRDC that quickly. And, and that, uh, you know, we had already had that relationship set up because, you know, I also ended up getting pregnant during that time.
0: right?
1: (laughs) And so I came and worked for three months and then had to go on maternity leave. But yeah, uh. So I had looked at some other jobs. Mm -hmm. I had talked to OEHA actually about doing a postdoc at OEHA because I didn't want any of their actual positions.
0: Say what, say what OEHA is.
1: Uh, uh, office of environmental health hazard assessment in California. It's like the branch that does risk assessment for California. Yeah. It's heavily scientific. Um, so that was interesting to me and there, you know, Somewhat conservative because they're a regulatory agency, but they're actually, you know, they do good science and they're willing to try new things. And so I thought, you know, that was a of any type of agency mm-hmm. position that was the most interesting to me. They do, you know, they they do really great work. And I, I, so I had I was talking to them about a fellowship, a, a postdoc. Mainly because I was interested in working for them, but I didn't like any of their like regular toxicology positions. That wasn't what I was interested in doing. I didn't want to go into plug and play. But I was. Int- they were interested in looking at alternative models for toxicology. They still are.
0: Yeah.
1: And I had already done a white paper on that. And that was something I was interested in and qualified to do. And I thought, oh, that would be really interesting to spend a couple of years helping OEHA figure out you know, how to use zebrafish in a risk assessment or something like that. So that was... That was one, another thing I was considering, but it was hard to say no to NRDC.
0: So you were offered the job at NRDC. And so you were at that point deciding, or maybe you'd already decided that, okay, at least my next step is really going to be to do policy, environmental policy work, use my science degree for advocacy.
1: Yeah. Like I said, I, I I loved the work and the like goal from the very beginning when I started NRDC. I think it was just trying to figure out how to find my place in that world and um, NRDC found a place for me instead. Yes. So, yeah. We have
0: this little hole we'd like you to fill. Okay. Yeah. So as we said at the outset, you, you became basically NRDC's PFAS scientist. And so mm-hmm. for people who aren't, super familiar with it, just say a little bit about PFAS, you know, what they are, what the issues are and just, you know.
1: Yeah. Uh, PFAS have kind of exploded onto the world scene in terms of issues because um, they have a whole cluster of hazard characteristics or issues that are associated with them um, that when you combine them all, um, this just makes for a really big Hard to tackle environmental and public health issue. They are highly fluorinated chemicals, which means that um, they're super durable. Uh, and it's uh, carbon-fluorine bonds are not actually natural in the environment. That's a man-made thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that does uh, is create super strong bonds in the molecule that don't break down. And so they're often called forever chemicals because they don't they don't break down or Maybe over thousands of years, kind of break break down the timeline, and so when we make them, they're there. They don't go away after that. You know, they're always going to end up being released at some point in their life cycle, and then they 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 contribute to the buildup of PFAS in our environment and eventually into our food chain and to, into us. And they are a little bit different than most persistent organic pollutants in that they're very mobile in the environment. Most of them can move uh, really easily in the in the aqueous environment or in air, so the the once they're <laughs> once they're released in the environment, they're super hard to contain. Um, they spread mm. quickly. Um, they're very hard to treat. They can build a lot of them can build up in our bodies. So some of them have half lives of ten years. Mm. Um, so it takes yeah, it takes a long time for them to be eliminated from our bodies. And that means that even if we're drinking a really small amount of them in our water, for instance, we're going to have 100 times, 200 times higher levels in our blood. And then the ones that we have studied, obviously we haven't studied all of them because there's like 9,000 of them now. But the ones we have studied have been linked to a wide array of health effects. And so everything from cancer to liver and kidney damage to developmental effects to suppression of the immune system... So, a lot of different uh, health effects have been associated with the exposure to them. I often think of some of them as kind of systemic toxicants because they have such a, um, have so many different effects on different systems in our bodies. And it makes sense from a biology point of view. If you look at some of these traditional chemicals, they look exactly like a fatty acid, but instead of carbon hydrogen chains, Like a tail, they have carbon fluorine tails. So, if they look like a fatty acid and they build up in our bodies, then they're changing the levels of fatty acids in our bodies and changing all of the signaling and systems that are dependent on fatty acids, and which actually is quite a few. So, they're really concerning from a a public health point of view, but also from an environmental point of view. Like, we're not the only ones affected by these chemicals. They're certainly, I'm sure they're certainly affecting animals and plants as well
0: you were co-author on a report that we just put out about pfos in the textile heavily used in the textile industry we can talk about that and i was looking at that there's a chart it has a, a illustration of all the different parts of the body where pfos can affect you know, your thyroid your liver your kidney your blood pressure so your heart and it's just, it's very striking the illustration. Cause as you were saying, it's really systemic. It just pretty much from your neck down to, you know, below your waist, you're, it's doing something. Yeah. And, and when you're saying it's, um, it's in your body, you know, it takes say 10 years to get rid of it, but you're always getting more. So you're not really getting rid of it. You're saying it's in your bloodstream. It can be in your bloodstream for 10 years or is it in your fat, your so, body fat or? That's that?
1: an extremely limited view that we have in, mm-hmm. you know, when we study humans, we don't take biopsies of their organs. We di- we take blood because that's what we can measure. Blood or urine, right? Yep. And taking anything else to sample is, is um, really invasive and um, painful for people. And so we measure blood uh, for PFAS. But uh, there was a cadaver study. Um, there's not been a lot of them, obviously, but there was a cadaver study in Spain that looked at levels of PFAS in people's organs, and um, we saw different like patterns of buildup of different types of PFAS in organs than we see in blood. So it just goes to show that we don't fully understand what's going on and how how PFAS behave in our bodies. So I, one of the one of the issues that we are facing right now is that when the original Chemical PFAS chemicals um, came under scrutiny, those were phased out. They're called long genes because they have longer carbon fluorine tails um, than the newer replacements um, that have been put out, which are basically exactly the same molecules, but a little shorter, a little smaller. Mm -hmm. And the claim from industry was that they were safe because they didn't build up in our bodies as much, which is true. They don't build up in our blood as much. But what the cadaver study found was actually that there were high levels of these short chains in some of the organs, higher than the long chains. Uh And so that's super concerning. We don't have any other data points, but it goes to show that if you only look at one aspect of our biology, you're not getting the full picture. Um, The other thing that's concerning about short chains or the replacement chemicals that industry has made is that they are being associated with health effects now, um, at least in animal studies, we're starting to see that like the replacements, even though they're shorter, if you're chronically exposed to them, you do start seeing cancer. You do start seeing immune effects uh, similar to the chemicals that they've replaced. Um, and that, you know, that that's the important part is that we're not talking about a very controlled experiment where people only get exposed once in their life. We're talking about people getting exposed chronically throughout their lives because, you know, PFAS build up in our environment and they're at low levels in our water or our food and our consumer products. So we're just kind of getting a little bit of exposure all the time. Um, And so, or unfortunately in certain cases in really highly contaminated communities, lots of exposure, um, for long periods of time. And so this whole thought that we're safe because these chemicals don't build up in our bodies is just really irrelevant because that's not what's going on in our environment in our environment, we're being exposed to them all the time. So again, it's just uh, another case of, you know, misdirection in, in messaging. I don't really care how long they build up in my body. If I'm still being exposed to them every day. Right. Uh, which is, which was the case for replacement PFAS because the more they use them, the more they build up in our environment.
0: Right. And the, that when you're saying there, the toxicity is at extremely low levels. Uh, people might not,
1: yeah, so for some for some PFAS, a good example is a lot of like uh, levels, safety levels for certain chemicals on the parts per billion or parts per billion, uh, million level. Um, we talk about safety levels for PFAS in the parts per trillion level. So um, really, really low. The OE the Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, did um, a risk analysis for um, PFOA and PFOS, the two original PFAS chemicals recently, and they set a one in a million cancer risk at 0.1 parts per trillion for PFOA and 0.4 parts per trillion for PFOS. So, you know, I mean, then then it comes to the question of what is the acceptable amount of risk, right? Uh, uh, you know, one in 100,000, one in 10,000, or one in a million, right? And then you have to remember that PFAS are not the only carcinogens in our lives. Right. So you have to, you know, Put that on top of all the accumulative exposures that we're getting from other types of carcinogens and that, you know, add those up. Um, right. Because they don't... We're not, we're not exposed to, to chemicals in a vacuum like animals are when we do animal experiments. Right. And that's one of the biggest flaws, I think, with the science, with like the traditional toxicology science, is that all of our data on, on these chemicals, any chemical, not just PFAS, Um, And that data that's used to set safety levels is all based off of an animal that's not being exposed to anything but that one chemical, which is not at all the case in real life for for us.
0: The Toxic Avengers Podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at toxicavengerspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at Pod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.